Let's put our minds together as one and remember those who have passed on to the sky world. Their life duties are complete. They are living peacefully in the sky world. In the sky world. My name is Natalie Evans, and you're listening to a special series from Some Kind of Brown called Red November. There's an epidemic in the indigenous communities that spurred a movement called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, or MMIW. For the entire month of November, which is National Native American Heritage Month in the United States, my contributors and I will be talking about the loss of our sisters, the impact it continues to have on each of our lives, and how we are honoring the women, girls, and two-spirit people who have walked on by being visible and making sure that we are heard. Our hope is that the fire in our hearts touches yours and the gaps between our communities can be bridged. Whether you are indigenous, multiracial like me, or not, thank you for being here and for listening. We are native. We've been here. We will not let our lost sisters and our own voices fade away. Welcome to the movement. Hello again, beautiful people. We are doing episode three of our Red November project, and I have another amazing guest for you. You might have heard her on Jensen and Hole's podcast recently, but would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hello, everybody. My name is Emily Washings. I run a page called Native Friends, and I talk about history and culture topics related to natives. And I also search for descendants of the Yakima War on the other side. So it's a really nice intro to have, especially when you're trying to meet historical enemies. I also teach at a college, history and ethnic studies. And I have a upcoming case study related to Yakima War that should be coming out soon. Well, a lot of important things, really. Yeah. I didn't know that you taught, but that makes sense. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, I didn't know that I would be teaching, you know, a few years ago, but they kept asking and they made it really nice for me to be able to do that. Well, just from our conversations before we started recording, you sound perfect for teaching. Oh. <laughs> I, I, um, I cannot really talk when I'm writing on the board. So there's these little moments that you have where you just, I just literally turn around and tell the class, like, I can't talk and write at the same time. So <laughs> <sighs> I'm just going to have to deal with it. Or um, I show a lot of visuals and, you know, I'll, I'll often have to stop and ask the class, like, is this what you like? Continuously they, they do. And it is a surreal moment to be coming back to teach. And 20 years ago, I was attending those classes. So it's a really good, good feeling. Sometimes we end up in places we never expected. But I think that sometimes we're drawn to opportunities where we can be really helpful. You never know where life's going to take you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One question that I did ask them, every time I start classes, I have students kind of journal with like a self-reflection which was an assignment that when I was in school, grad school, I hated. 
(laughs) Initially, I hated, I was like, I don't want to talk about this. But one of the questions that I asked them was, when was your first Native teacher? Oh, gosh. Yeah. And 83% of them had never had a Native teacher before. I was going to say, I don't know what kind of numbers you would get for that. Yeah. And some had said, I asked it all as well on my social media, just in um, my own. And a lot of people had said they never had. And if some one woman even went and had a Native American studies minor, and she never had a Native instructor in college. That just does not make any sense to me. Yeah. aspect of like having, you know, conversations. Can we talk about these things? Can we revisit? And so if I 83% of my students or people I'm talking to have never had somebody teach them that was from my background, you know, how do we get to the point where, you know, they we build trust or they hear things and get familiar with things that I've known right. that, that they should have been exposed to earlier, at least at some point. It'd be interesting to know what they gained from someone who is not necessarily part of the community and looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. My students are pretty shy. You know, it's something that I'm thinking about incorporating even in my talks that I give and asking that question just to see the response. And there has been different people that have audited my course in the past. I've had a math professor audit my my (laughs) course, which everybody was saying, why is he in your course? I didn't know if he was in... I said, well, apparently he just wants to learn. I mean, I, I was going to say, bad bad. Mm-hmm. learning's lifelong. <laughs> that is the truth. And as someone who is reconnecting with this side of my identity later in life, it's very interesting. Lots of learning moments. Lots of vulnerability as well. It's like, am I going to be okay enough with hearing the responses? And then what do I do with that information? Are they going to be okay enough with the responding? And in the responses that I read were, you know, they were for the first time taking into account that they had never had a teacher, like because it was a journal and they were, you know, narrating out that response for the first time. I think I like that. I'm always for self-evaluation. And I think that would be very interesting if they'd never thought of that before. Mm -hmm. And even with this, like how many have heard natives on a podcast before? I only know of two podcasts that handle indigenous specific topics. Mm. There could be more. There are a ton of podcasts out there, but I only know of two. Yeah. It's just like a podcast that deal with mixed mm-hmm. race identity. There are very few of us mm-hmm. that are still going. Yeah, you're breaking trail. Which is a, a very interesting experience, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> but we have talked about women in two very different circumstances. We talked about Savannah Greywind in the first episode, who was kind of instrumental in starting this form of the movement. And we've talked about another woman who unfortunately was not given as much news coverage. And that was a kind of recent story that should be developing, but has gone media silent. So it's it's very hard when you look at the names and the actual individual cases of these women and what kind of information is available, if any. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of times we only know the circumstances of their disappearance. And when I try to research who were they as a person, they're only known within the context of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And that can be really difficult as well, especially when we're trying to humanize these individual women instead of having just these list of names. Yeah. 
I think it has to do with, you know, the trust factor. If somebody hasn't talked about even the case or when it happened and then they want access to these these family stories, there could definitely be a trust factor. Why now? Why do you want to contact me now? Why should I tell you oh, yeah. on one side of it? And then, yeah, on the other side of it, it's like, well, it really helps to know this information about them. We want to help build awareness about who they were as a person. You know, these are conversations that when I work with families, that's basically the conversation that I'm having there. We still have family members that are not willing to publicly discuss their loved one. They're fine with them being on a list. They're okay with information being forwarded. It's hard for them because basically they're re-triggered going through everything. Yeah. So you never know, you know, what family position might be on that. Yeah. And for those of us who are Indigenous or Native, it can be difficult to see these things happen again and again and not have answers and wondering if we are safe. Yeah, it's 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 a good point. It can be really disheartening. Yeah, you're reliving through these stories and this aspect of safety. Are you going to go outside at night by yourself to get something from the car? When two weeks ago you would have done that, but now that you feel like you're more situationally aware of the statistics and everything else, is that going to be something that you're going to do? Are you going to let your kids play, you know, five feet away from you while you run in to get something from the house without watching them? Yeah. You know, these are very relevant questions and it, it has to do with being able to live. But I would say there is a silence factor involved with some of these because sometimes the reason why some of the families are quieter is because they've already put kind of a a label on some of these women. Absolutely. And I talk about this because in my community, you know, I'm pretty, I don't, we don't drink, we don't do drugs. I've been married for 14 years. We have three kids, you know, I, I don't do some of the activities or recreational things, but still I'm lending my voice or platform to some of the women within my tribe or around the area. And that surprises people because it's almost like I'm extending my labels or credentials to them. And it has to do with this aspect of like, well, why shouldn't I? There are women from our tribe. Why is it controversial to want to help our missing and murdered Indigenous women? Why is it controversial to want to live, to talk about the things that we face? And, you know, both internally of the tribe and externally of the tribe, we see this come up again and again about being quiet about it. This theme and idea of, of silence is, is pretty strong in this MMIW movement yeah. on an individual level. There are a lot of things that make it really hard for people to talk with people outside of the community as well. And just dealing with grief. Grief can be debilitating and Sometimes you just want to compartmentalize it and leave it over there and try to live your life because that's the only thing you can do. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of feelings wrapped up in this. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a curious person. So there's, there'll be times in areas where I'll ask questions about things, but I also connect strongly with the history of this area. You know, I won't say that I know everything we talked about this earlier about, you know, learning is lifelong, but I draw strength from that also, knowing that these things happened to us in the past and our people endured that so that we could still be here. We've talked about that before, just the resilience of the Native communities through all of this basically continuous violence. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, when I read through some of the different historical documents that talk about rubbing out our blotting Yakimas from existence, I felt that. <laughs> I felt, you know, when you see that in black and white, talking about your tribal name, which, you know, I'm enrolled Yakima, in characterized that way or that attack, I didn't know where to put that. And immediately I, you know, made some kind of graphic and reached out to a tribal member group. And was like, let's talk about this. Did you see this? Oh my gosh. And you know, the response was strong. <laughs> I don't think it was until, you know, these more recent talks that we've been hearing about, you know, these are acts of genocide. Yeah. Talking about that in that way is an act of genocide. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's such a heavy term. I need to go buy mascara right now. I don't want to think about that. I mean, that's a very accurate feeling. <laughs> you know, how do I balance feeling and knowing this? along with all the daily stuff I got to do. You know, I can't think about that while I need to do these other things because it's super triggering. Yeah. Where and when do we do that? It's an ongoing kind of question. It's ongoing reflection about you know what that is for us individually. For sure. And as a mixed person who is Indigenous and Black, it's very complicated when just this week, we're recording ahead of time. So we are talking in October, but you'll be hearing this in November. Just this last week, there was another act of police brutality that ended the life of an 18-year-old Black girl. Mm -hmm. So that was hard on me. And then there was another murdered sister in Anchorage. So within a few days, I get hit from both sides. And so what do I do with that? Because on the subject of safety and how we want to deal with that as individuals when you're mixed and you belong to two ethnic groups that are experiencing different forms of real genocide. Mm -hmm. What do you even do with that? Yeah, I mean, what it's like I'm responding on both ends. It's very it's accurate. My children are, my husband is also an old native, but his father's side is Irish. You know, so it's always important for me to be aware of the different things and how they may eventually interpret what's in their communities, but they don't really fully know that Irish side or that identity at all. But when you talk about communities that face violence and statistics, it's hard thing to face. For sure. And the woman we're talking about today is actually someone that people from non-Indigenous communities have probably heard of. Antoinette Christine Cayadito has been talked about outside of Indigenous circles, so I think it's important to talk about her from a Native perspective instead of this true crime perspective that is very, very commonly communicated. Yeah. She is still missing, and she was a child. She was only nine. And one of the areas in the U.S. that experiences a high level of violence or missing women is in the New Mexico area. Mm -hmm. Internet was Navajo. And there's been so much information about what happened to her, but it's something that is very heart-wrenching. This little girl was missing in 1986, and she is still almost 30 years later missing. And all we really know about her as a person is that she was very helpful around the house. She was a very good sister. So much potential mm -hmm. that we didn't get to see blossom. Yeah, I'm, I have two young daughters. So yeah, it's something that I live in fear of as well. And I couldn't think and imagine 
I'm sure looking at something like this can be terrifying. They'd been at the apartment with a babysitter. It's supposed to be safe, you know? And I'm not a parent, but you don't have to be a parent to imagine how terrifying that would be. Mm -hmm. What are all the steps and things that you have to do, you know, to keep your children safe? And then once they're in a situation or obviously missing, what are the areas and that they're listed at? I mean, I think the aspect and idea that we as a Native community don't have access to the same resources for visibility that non-natives is, is hard to hear for people that aren't in the Native community. There's a definite denial factor yeah. and response that usually comes in. And the first part of it, I will say that there'll be this almost like, well, that can't be true because I would have heard about it. It's like, no, this is the point we're bringing it up now is that you don't hear about it. You don't know her name. You haven't seen her face. Our community boards for missing don't highlight or spotlight our Native missing children as much. You know, so how do we get better at that? How do we bring her case to light? How do we review these in a way that is helpful? Yeah. And they say when you're dealing with these things, one of the most important things you can do when you're having a missing family member is keep them in the media. But a lot of people in tribal communities don't have access to mm -hmm. local media. They're kind of out of that jurisdiction as well. So how do you make sure your child or your sister, your daughter, your mother, make sure they're in the media when you don't have that resource either. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of people turn to the internet. Yeah, social media has been a really great tool for getting the word out about so many of these cases. And now when there's somebody in this area that's been missing, usually I'll be able to see something like that on my feed. But there's still cases that I didn't know about that I should have known about you know, locally. That's something I'm starting to become more and more aware of personally as well. It's a difficult thing to try to stay connected and aware of things when there's such a lack of resources and communication in general. Mm -hmm. Where do you go to find out what's happening around you? Yeah, and even the, what is the process for um, reporting somebody missing? What is the process for the tribes to share that information? Yeah. I, I can't think of any tribe that has a public available list of their um, missing women right now. Yeah, and that's why gathering the numbers and the information about how many women and girls are missing and what happened and that kind of thing, that's why there isn't a lot of data available. Mm -hmm. Or what are the reasons? Yeah, and, and some, sometimes for them not to have a publicly available list, it has to do with this technology or digital divide or the resources yeah. they don't have the time and resources to be able to sit there and figure out rss feeds and things <laughs> like that or even funding to get that far yeah exactly and i don't think it's this aspect of like we're sitting on our thumbs like while these people are missing i think there's significant factors that are barriers to that so what kind of information sharing might be available what kind of things can media even do to help elevate this? Um, I think those are very relevant questions. And I think it's important for people outside of the Native communities to know as well, because if you're just discovering this movement, it can be kind of overwhelming, but confusing. And you don't know what's going on. Why aren't people talking about it more? Why aren't these Indigenous communities doing more? They don't really understand the barriers that are there when you're trying to report the lack of resources. And from 
the native side, I mean, we have a few resources we can go to. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're raising money for the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, because they have advocacy and they can help mm-hmm. somewhat to get you started when you're trying to locate a family member or get things done and things like Paul Holes and Billy Jensen volunteering to be a resource as well is really important and helpful. But this movement, like we've said, is is new. And I'm hoping that as time continues, more resources will be available and the mm-hmm. tribal communities can kind of hopefully be able to start recording these things. It's this aspect of like, how much do I do as an individual compared to, you know, from an indigenous or native lens, it's how much do I do as an individual compared to how much I should allow my tribe to kind of basically do. You know, I wrestle with that question, you know, on an ongoing basis, because in one realm, you know, I want to just pull things off of Pinterest and try to nail them with my children, not you know, making these, you know, these different activities, I don't want to necessarily research some of these cases, because I don't feel like I have the tools. I don't have a law and justice degree. Yeah, I don't have this background. I don't have access to these other things. But from a traditional standpoint, if you're asked to help on something like this, we're supposed to help our fellow tribal members. Yeah. And so I always let them know like these are my limitations in this i don't have any official title or status in helping you look up your family member i can't guarantee that i'll find or learn anything but if that's the place that you're coming from and you're speaking from your heart and asking for help then i should be able to just respond from my heart yeah and this idea and this aspect of you know having different tools available and resources it's it's also this idea of having a model What are our models for these databases that are out there right now? If it's not there, do we create it? You know, if these conversations that we want to hear about these missing children aren't visible enough, who's who's working on that that we want to broadcast out? And so hopefully it'll get a bigger, wider reach. You know, and I think the coalition is a really good example of that. You know, you look for people that are continuously having and building these conversations. And, you know, I know that if I look on their social media, if I scroll through their Instagram page, I can always find out something else that they're up to or doing or a talk that they're hosting, a campaign that they're putting on. And it's a reassurance. I should say, too, that a lot of the different people, when they come to this issue, there's a kind of a, well, that should be just the tribe. It's tribal sovereignty, so they should just be in charge. (laughs) I think that's like six of my seven comments on another story I wrote about this. Oh, my goodness. And it's like they start doing like victim blaming. It's like if the tribe really cared, they would find them. They want them to be missing. You know, it's very intense and divisive language dehumanizing language that's used and a lot of people don't realize that tribes cannot prosecute for major crimes there's actually a federal act that says tribes cannot prosecute for crimes so our tribal jail has never prosecuted a murderer and i think it gets worse when the perpetrator is outside of tribal jurisdiction yeah i mean there's completely different processes for missing and murdered indigenous women based on the you're right, the um, suspect's identity. So if it's a native, it'll go to one specific court system and prosecution and a, a different law enforcement will have jurisdiction 
if it's a non-native, it'll go to a completely different pathway. So you could very well be following two cases that have two completely different jurisdictional paths, two completely different courtrooms that are all going at the same time. And so then for media to be able to be aware of all these federal policies is difficult. Um, Let's just be honest, they don't know about Major Crimes Act off the top of their head, most of them. And then to be able to translate that into a relatable message for the community, that's just not happening necessarily in most areas because, you know, they don't understand the different dynamics and they don't understand it enough to be able to communicate to that community. I look at these other correspondents that they have in other media, like they'll have different correspondents that are, you know, like the Venezuela correspondent or these different countries. And I'm like, why don't news media have these correspondents that are specifically for Indian country, which is a federal policy term? Why don't they have them specific for tribes? Because it, that's what it literally takes. You have to understand the different laws and the community in a way to translate that information to other people. But there is a lot of othering that takes place on a conversational level. And if you're brave enough to go look at all the keyboard warriors that are responding, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of othering. Well, she's yeah. native, so why do we care? Like, she's, that's not in our jurisdiction. Put it to the tribe. But then you also say things like, well, if she was stealing from a store, you would prosecute her. So why aren't those same services used to find her? Yeah. You know, and I, I constantly think of that image of the woman that is blindfolded while she's holding the scales which is our symbol for justice Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot because I have to talk to families that sometimes are like well she wasn't in the best place or different things like that I could tell how hurt they are and how scared they are to bring forward this knowing that she has a past and I, I think of this woman that has blindfolded. It's like, well, that's why she's blindfolded because she may have done these things, but none of those equal her being taken yeah. or murdered. I think it's a very hard dynamic to come up against for Native women. And also, you know, you had mentioned the other identity that you are a part of in the community is how come are these women can basically be having, let's say, an American Pie moment in their lives? And then all of a sudden that something happens to them and then they're blamed for having that recreational time or those extracurricular activities. But we wouldn't necessarily see non-natives or people that are not with their background, their ethnicity being treated the same way. If this happened to somebody that was a different ethnicity, you usually see it more. Yeah, that's something about the Urban Indian Health Institute's report that I think is really important because they highlight how many times violent language is used when these cases are actually reported. Yeah, I mean, that's language violence. That's a powerful term. And, you know, Urban Indian Health Institute definitely brought that to the forefront with that report. I mean, they revalidated what women go through, whether you're Native or Black and Indian or other identity. They made a term for it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's what that means when they talk about me or my sisters in that way. Okay, I get it. And I get how that can be on a pathway of violence. If somebody's dehumanizing you, Brene Brown talks about this in general, but if somebody's dehumanizing you, that is a pathway to accepting violence against you. Yeah. You know, they need to dehumanize you as a part of this process. It's very important to recognize when that is happening. As a Native woman, it's very important to see who is using dehumanizing language. I think for the broader nationwide, we have that hashtag MeToo movement that's been very key and has a lot of people um, speaking up on 
what that means and what do boundaries mean? What do power dynamics mean? What does that mean if you're a woman? I mean, I think these are very relevant times to be in with regards to, you know, speaking up about your boundaries. I love hearing examples of different women that are in power positions of what they've done to like maintain that. How do they maintain being safe? And there's one woman that I met that, you know, I had asked a question like, well, what do you do if somebody has said something really inappropriate to you, like in a meeting or something? She's like, oh, I refuse to go. I refuse to go to a meeting. And I make it very clear. I will not be attending this meeting if so-and-so is there. And I was like, you do? (laughs) Like, I did not know you could do something like that and say it like that. But here's this example that I'm seeing of another, she doesn't identify as native. She's more of the Mexican community and our machista community. And I hear that I'm just like, wow. And she represents somebody that's very powerful. She's on the staff of somebody that is very powerful. And she's like, no. And I list out the reasons why. (laughs) And you know, I think we're in the times now where we hear more of those examples. I wouldn't even have thought of that. Yeah, me either. I just said, wow. I would have been like, well, here's my memo and I will sit over here. I don't know. I don't know how to For real? navigate that. <laughs> we don't have examples of these navigation. How do you navigate when there's language violence against you? And I think we're having more and more conversations about that in this time. And I, it's really uncomfortable because if you're conflict averse, you don't really want to talk about all these things, these uncomfortable things that might happen. And if you were feeling weird about it, but you don't really have the words to piece it together. Yeah. But on the other hand, like, I'm very excited for my daughters because I'm like, wow, where will we be in 10 years from this? Where will we be, you know, when they start their first job? I mean, even the example of being pulled in close by somebody that you don't really know and like whispered in the ear, like, what do you do when somebody (laughs) does that to you? And you are like, not really cool with them, but you're not like against them either. You're just not whisper in the ear friends, you know, how do you respond to that? And I brought this conversation up because I think about these things. I think about when this happens, what could I have done or should I have done? I don't have a problem with this person. I don't feel anything negative towards them, but I, I don't feel like we're that close. How do I bring this up without making it an issue or a thing? Like I'm the brown girl with the problem all of a sudden. So I asked somebody and they were like, oh, you just pull their hand off. <laughs> you just take their hand and literally remove it from you. And I thought, wow, really? You would do that? And Or they said another option is to just put your hand up like as a stop. Oh. Especially if you're in a public place with a lot of other people because that communicates a non-consent. Like I did not consent to you hugging me and whispering in my ear at this moment. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I've never thought of these different things about, you know, how we communicate with each other and how if we're not comfortable, how do we course correct that while it's happening if we don't think about that beforehand and it happens to us it can kind of just not make you feel so great Absolutely. and if you build that up over time you know do you start just not noticing that you start not noticing how many things might have just made you kind of a little bit uncomfortable and then all of a sudden you're just not in a great place but Urban Indian Health Institute did a great way of bringing that forward with language violence and it's it's pushed me to have more of these conversations. I think for people like me, I grew up in the South. I worked in an environment where I was the only person of color on staff. Mm. And not only that, I was 22 when I started my career at the church that I no longer am a part of. But 
I was 22, and when staff members would do that handshake and then bring you close, I didn't know what to do. But there's this whole societal pressure to respect your elders, don't bring up problems, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a woman. I was a very young woman. And you kind of just let the older guys do that. It's just Bob. He's just like that. You know, a lot of those behaviors are excused. Yeah, the fight, flight, or freeze. You know, it's definitely the freeze moment in that. Yeah. And now that we know everything we know about, you know, not everything we know, but now that we've been talking about more things, it's like, what is that freeze moment? And how is that potentially misinterpreted as consent or being okay with things? You know, when we talk about this larger issue, our safety, our consent, or language violence, I mean, these are all kind of relevant. It's nothing that I grew up hearing. Yeah. Much like all of these women. I grew up hearing that internal to my family and things that happened, but externally, you know, I didn't see the news articles about these women. Nine times out of 10, a lot of the anecdotal information that I get from different families checks out. And like a lot of people get really surprised about that. And I'm like, well, our word of mouth was our protection for decades. In not having resources, we've had to rely on women, Native women looking out for other native women either as mothers as cousins as aunties that's just how it's been but when you talk about this to other people that are non-native the response is often like just a shock less and less now they at least know it's an issue but in terms of when we get to the nitty-gritty about like well yeah did you know that we don't have a single we're in a rural community so there's still a lot that of flyers that are posted different Mm -hmm. places But we don't have a single community board that has all of our missing women. You know, that's not anywhere on the tribe. Not an official one. These families go around and find different boards and put them up. Or, you know, people that support the families go and put up flyers. But we don't have an official, like, like, okay, I can go to this spot and see who are missing. I'm at the point now where I've asked our tribe for that for, like, months. Why don't we have a community board of it? Why don't we have a dedicated space that somebody else can put these up, not just the families? And now I'm at the point where like, you know what, I don't know what's going on with the tribe. I don't want to like do a re-ask or something that it's not going to move forward again. I'm going to go to a non-native community and ask them. I was like, fine, I'll go to to somebody else because there's other people that ask me, how can they help? And now I'm at the point where I'm like, well, I'm going to tell them I want a community board. You have a business. Would you be willing to host a board of our missing women in this area? That's something that I appreciate about the coalition because in addition to all these resources they make available, they also have trainings where if you are in a place to afford it or your tribe can afford it, you can be educated on how to do these things. Send people from your community who can come back and help set up these kinds of committees and things like that. That is very important. Mm -hmm. But again, you do kind of have to have the support to get that kind of thing going. Yeah. And I don't, I think it's just the aspect of, you know, we have 50 things we need to do as a tribe on this given day in this given program. And maybe this community board is always 47. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't think it's something that they completely disagree with. I just think it's an aspect of time and resources. That makes sense, because looking at how many things they have to deal with, I don't know how they would have time necessarily in some cases to get to it, because there are a lot of concerns. Well, it also has to do with probably, you know, this aspect of like, what if I fail or get it wrong? What if I post a missing person's flyer or area, and in the background I have 
you know, this color and she hated that color? Or what if I had the wrong font? Or what if I didn't include her nickname? You know, I, I think there is a fear that comes in because it's so new and because we're creating these ways to build awareness, both within our community and outside. I think there is that fear factor that goes into trying to help. Because what if I get it wrong? What if the family misconstrues this as I don't respect them because I didn't know, you know, that she used this nickname and I did I missed it on the flyer. How do we address and allow ourselves that room from some error in a new process? So yeah, I mean, trainings and going to other people that have faced this or done that, I think it's a good thing because you're being able to be around people that have basically been through things like this or are going through things. That's a really good point. I didn't even think of that. I just thought of it on the top of my head when you were talking about trainings and how excited I was. And I (laughs) tried to think about why I was so excited. I was like, because I'm scared of messing up. (laughs) And that's why having conversations like these are important, even for those of us who are involved, you so more than me. There's always uh, ideas that pop up and it's always nice to talk to people who are at least some level of aware of what's going on and sharing experiences. Those things are very helpful. Mm-hmm. But I did want to go back to what you said about going to out- non-natives, people outside of the community for help when you can't receive help from inside. We've talked a little bit about some things people can do, but they sometimes might seem a little vague or like that we're not doing enough. That seems like another way that people can be involved. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier, you specifically have some ways that some of our listeners who are non-Indigenous can be involved that are probably a little more specific than what we've offered before. Yeah, so there's um, a few bills, federal bills that are up in the D.C. area. So we have the Violence Against Women Act, which isn't specific to just Native women, but it's up for reauthorization. It's currently expired right now. We also have Savannah's Act, which is named for Savannah Greywind in MMIW. And it went before the legislature last year and made some headway, but didn't fully get passed. So now the person that's co-sponsoring that represents the area I live at, Representative Newhouse. I talk about call to actions and I'm like, you know what, if we can get 20 people to just reaffirm that, yes, we want you to be having this legislation that is increases the safety for Native women that reverses these horrible statistics. I think that's helpful. It's helpful to hear that that level of support from people. And then there's also the in, Not Invisible Act, which has to do with coordination. So those are the kind of three federal level uh, acts that are being proposed you want to follow that obviously they post regularly about the status on those and who are the sponsors and everything like that and you know reach out to them and say you know i heard this podcast and you're talking about the violence against native women or mmiw and they mentioned that you're you're somebody that's supporting this bill and i'd really you know appreciate you continuing this work it's just this aspect of building awareness as well showing that the work that's being done right now is happening And the more we have these conversations and we can get these things out there, I may not be qualified at all, but someone listening might be able to do something. And that is the power of just getting things out there. Mm -hmm. So we've mentioned here and there in the conversation a little bit, but you are working on a report that deals with the Yakima War. Yeah, so I got a grant a few years back to do a video on the Yakima War. It was a emerging artist grant from the Evergreen State College. 
when I was doing this part of the work, I started looking at how much our historical accounts are in history books. We aren't quoted, we aren't referenced. I, you know, in trying to think about how to depict this video, I had a very different idea of how to do this video before or it was actually, you know, later on in the process. Yeah. And I really didn't want it to be a us versus them. Which is really easy to slip into. Yeah. It's, and the one thing that is communicated is war is complicated, right? So you have these different accounts and these different people that are like, why is it on this account the U.S. government was fighting us, but then you fast forward three months and they're supporting us in this action against the governor? Why is this judge you know, supporting Yakimas and natives and fighting with the governor and the governor's threatening to arrest him with militia law. You know, I mean, there's so many different dynamics. It's not black and white, but so I started approaching in that way. And then I started thinking about, I have these things that I think about the war and I think about this process, but what do people that fought against my tribe, what did their descendants think? And I couldn't like turn that question off. Like I would go down these rabbit holes, either just mentally or like actually like researching or thinking, like, what if I found a descendant of the Yakima War and asked him? Oh, my goodness. And so, and I would ask everybody, I would ask people like, and I would be buying cereal and like, you know, if somebody took a pause, was like, how are you doing? I'd be like, oh, hey, I'm good. Oh, also, have you ever heard about the Yakima War? <laughs> Do you ever, you know? <laughs> I was like obsessed with finding this descendant and people were, most people didn't even know what the war, like other faculty that I talked with, I presented about this last year. They're like, I didn't know there was a Yakima war. (laughs) I can't say I'm surprised. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I was, but if you were buying cereal next to me, you would have heard about it. (laughs) I think that's That's one way to spread awareness and try to find people. Mm -hmm. Jury duty. I brought it up during jury oh duty. Oh my goodness. Because <laughs> you can't talk about the case, you know, in your break. I was like, what are you talking? Like, I don't want to really feel like talking about these, my family to these strangers. So then I just start talking about the war. But I mean, a number of the feedback was, you know, like, no, I don't know that. That's like finding a needle in a haystack. And then when I'd start to get into the like nitty gritty, emotions of it the underbelly people would say well like emily even if you find them what makes you sure they're gonna even want to talk to you and i was like ouch i didn't like who would i want to talk to me i think i'm pretty great but yeah i was gonna say that's something i wouldn't think of either of course they want to talk to me about it yeah yeah there's an assumption level there so i was like well i don't know i didn't think about that so i mean now i'm thinking like did that person in the cereal aisle really know or were they a descendant? They just didn't want to talk to me about it. Um, oh my goodness. But, <laughs> no, I, I got a little bit, I got a little bit obsessed with it, but um, eventually I ended up finding one. And then at this point, fast forward about a year and the Evergreen State College reached out to me and said, you know, Hey, would you like to mentor with another artist? So I said, yeah. And then um, in leading up to that artist in residence opportunity, I did a kind of a call for descendants of the Yakima War and the press like put out that call for me. And so somebody was listening on the radio and then heard it and they were a descendant of the Yakima War. It's probably a little more effective than asking people in the cereal aisle. <laughs> yeah, that's the power of, of getting platforms. And so, you know, it worked out and I, I found a number of them. The PBS had recorded the series Native America. And locally, our KCTS9 was putting together spotlights. And I pitched this to them as an option. 
Like, why don't you film me meeting this Yakima war descendant that I've been a pen pal with for over a year and film us meeting on camera for the first time? Oh, wow. They had to, of course, go through all their different levels. And then the producers had to see how that would, you know, work within a show and um, yeah. and eventually ended up going through. That's why there's a short five minute film now about, you know, us meeting for the first time in person and what that means to have historical enemies, you know, coming face to face for the first time in 164 years at the site where, you know, a lot of stuff went down, you know, and when we filmed that moment, like a lot of people say, like, was it a, was it as powerful as I saw on camera? That's like one of the questions like people ask when there's like nobody around. So now of course I'm going to like tell everybody in this podcast (laughs) what they're asking. Um, (laughs) I won't name names, but they ask like, is it, was it really as powerful as I saw? Cause it seemed powerful. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, the film crew was crying. Wow. Because we don't have these examples, right? This even reconciliation or this meeting up. We don't have that many examples that are, you know, recorded. Yeah of us revisiting history of us talking about it and talking about it in any in a way where we're talking about it with historical enemies that are now you know penned out you know i i approached this with just curiosity i wanted to see and i wanted to hear you know and so it's grown to this bigger aspect of like what is possible with revisiting accounts of the yakima war what is possible in revisiting these 164 year old pieces of our history one of the things that I pushed forward is, you know, the reason for this, our Yakima War started was for violent because of violence against Yakima women and children, um, rape and murder. I mean, that's and, a pretty good motivator. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is that's been erased. So 90% of the history books or historical accounts erase this. And it makes you think about the narrative that's put forth before you. Like, why do we need to have these little lies Yeah. or erasure? They're specifically erased from the historical record. And so now I don't ask any of the descendants for apologies. I don't ask them for all of those things. And that's something that Glenn had, the descendant that I met on camera had mentioned. And he mentioned it on camera as they were asking him a question. And I thought, I never even thought about asking him for an apology. I don't know why. I mean, I guess I felt like I was asking a lot for him just to meet with me or talk with me. How do you ask somebody for an apology when you don't even know the full realm of what their relative was involved in? This seems like a really weird way to start a conversation. And, you know, it might be different for other people, but this is just my approach of it. I wanted to have him stand by my side as I shared the Yakima historical account of the Yakima War. And he was related to someone who's it, but he didn't directly do it. And I feel like this could only have happened if you approached this exactly how you did with openness and with no ill feelings towards the descendants. And then two, having someone feel comfortable enough sharing these experiences. Otherwise, I don't feel like this could have happened. He talked about some of that in the film. Like, I am i don't know if she'll come. I was like, oh, well. If you watch the film, you see it's almost like those reuniting films where like you meet. So I, I, you know, I know both my parents, but it's like where you meet your parent again, your unknown parent because of how they like filmed it. And I thought, wow, I never really thought of it in that light or realm. But I guess just because of how I approached it, that's what fit visually the best. Yeah. So it's like the walk, walk up, the slow walk up (laughs) to meet each other. Of course, it has to be as dramatic as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's like it feels like I'm meeting a long lost parent 
I feel like this would be like, uh, so I am descended from slaves on the black side. This would almost be like meeting the descendant of the people who owned my family. Oh, wow. That's what it feels like to me, what you did. Wow. I mean, yeah. Just like you, I don't feel anger towards the descendants, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. I'm very curious. I'm very curious about, do you think about it as much as I do? Is this something that impacted your life as much as it impacts mine? Because I'm not very far separated from it like a lot of people my age are because my family is quite old and waited to have children. Mm. I would like to see maybe Mm -hmm. if, if they even think about it. Well, it's a good point, too, because a lot of the different military that were in our war then went to the Civil War. It's so crazy that these all these things happening around the same time and just thinking about just having that conversation and sitting mm-hmm. down and I don't even know how that would go. You know, different people have different approaches to it. Like yeah. there's different family members that are extremely emotional, which is why I say I don't know if I could ever bring Glenn to any of our tribal events. Because I can't guarantee that other people wouldn't. Um, And I'm very open about that because I can say, Mm -hmm. oh, I can only say like, this is how I respond to it. And this is how I'm addressing it. But he has never been in a public space in our tribal community. You know, there's a round outs tonight at our school. Like, I don't know how they would react if I'm like, hey, this guy fought against his ancestors fought against him in the Yakima War. Like, would that get a song? Would that get a round dance? Would that, you know, I don't know. Yeah, there's immediate assumption, like they carry, what do they carry with them? Yeah. Do they continue to kind of have a certain mentality or feeling or sentiment or belief system? Do they share their ancestors' belief system and continue it today? In these times, yeah, it's it's intense to kind of be in this. And each descendant I meet is in their own specific, unique processing part of this. There's some that are very angry, but, you know, I, I chose to kind of highlight, you know, Glenn and I, because I think we've had the most and in, most interesting conversations and the most dialogue. And um, he seemed to be at a processing level the same way that I was. And he also had children, which brought in a really unique dynamic because I also had children. Yeah. So what would it be like to have in, introduce our children to feel safe enough for, uh, between each other? I'll be honest and say I probably would have to do some more internal growth work before I... <laughs> do something like that well if you think about like in this country like why don't we have these moments or these things i mean we see a lot of like world war ii revisiting of why don't we have this for our 1800s or our different accounts yeah but one of the things that he recognized at the end of the filming and there's they were still getting photos even though we were done filming they would snap different photos I didn't know this, but when we were just talking, I didn't know they were going to do that. So we were just kind of wrapping up and he had said, well, what's next? So what's next? Where do we go from here? And they were recording at this point, you know, and I had just said, you know, you had brought up that article that mentions that somebody in your family had started the ECMA war, which you knew was an error based on the information that I have. And you know how hard it is for me as a native woman, not only just to talk about the war. So on top of all this other stuff, everybody's like, how, why should I listen to some native woman about war? Like, I want to hear and see this warrior on a horseback coming up telling me about the war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and these chiefs and to descend from horseback with this, you know, PowerPoint presentation. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> because in the process, I also talked about how our native women fought in the war. 
You know, I talked to my uncle about that. And he's like, well, I said, how would I explain this to other people? Which is another thing I'm always searching for. Like, I want to find the military person that validated that our Yakima women fought in the war. Because why did they erase that from their journals? Why wouldn't they talk about that? I I have a lot of knee-jerk reactions (laughs) and answers to that. (laughs) Yeah. The work you're doing is so important and exciting and... It's interesting to hear what can be done from an academic standpoint, just the unique circumstances that you're in, what you can do. After filming, I said, you know what, we should ask for a correction to that 1904 article in which your white relatives were quoted in starting the Yakima War and say that was incorrect and ask for a hundred plus year old correction. I mean, that's fair. And so we did. And I provided all the different census records he gave me. And we co-authored it, actually. We co-authored wow. the op-ed and asked for a correction, which they held on to for like a month. I don't know if they knew what to do with it. The editors are like, <laughs> I don't know if people regularly make 100-year-old newspaper corrections or ask for that. <laughs> but we were doing it. I think they should for something so big. Well, yeah. I mean, this is an opportunity that people might you know, have in front of them. If you see an error in it's in your history... And you notice the native girl over there that's trying to talk about the start reason for the start of the war. And she's not quoted as much, but why were your relatives were with incorrect information? So part of the census record that he gave me showed that a relative had said that they started the Yakima War over some land dispute. And then the census record he gave me as that relative was not even in the Washington Territory at the start of the Yakima War. It shows them living in a completely different county. An area and territory. Oh my god! And there's like so many receipts, right, that he gave me that I could just show. And you know, it's a smaller 500 word op-ed, but you know, I compartmentalized all of it. But I did hold it, you know. So originally, I was going to request that in November, but just because of the nationwide animosity and conflict, and we live in a, I live in a fairly conservative area as well. I mean, there's there's a big range here, but there's some pretty conservative people that live here. I really didn't want to have that. And it's something I didn't really recognize. Like I would go like a month or two months and say, why am I holding this? And I wouldn't know until I finally did in March. They published it in the beginning of May. It was next to the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Moon, which is May 5th. And um, they published it May 4th. And I realized, you know, I wanted it to be connected to something. You know, I didn't want to be connected to the election dynamic stuff that was going on in the fall. Right. And so when it published, I realized that because different people were asking like, hey, do you have the op-ed yet? Hey, did you finish that? And I'm like, no, not yet. No, I don't know why. So we talk about processing. And I know you mentioned that earlier. You need a lot of processing work. Sometimes you're just in it and you don't fully know why you're making or not making certain moves or decisions. <laughs> you're just saying. And then it becomes clear, you know, once you're there. And so that's definitely the case with that. And we requested that um, correction. And then I wrote up what's called a case study through the Native Cases at the Evergreen State College. It's a peer-reviewed publication and it'll be open source, which just means you won't have to have like some journal subscription or anything like that. There's no pay window or anything like that to access it. Which is always nice. (sighs) And so I'll publish this short one and it talks about, you know, the violations that happened against our Native women, how this is in the Yakima War. And really it's driving this question. Case studies are 
they really feed a lot of open-ended questions. So, and if somebody teaches this case, there's not necessarily a firm answer at the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's just an ongoing question, which is kind of the beauty of case studies. It can be frustrating at first to teach them. So, you know, one of these things that I talk about is like, what is possible in post-Indian War reconciliation? Is it possible to revisit this current MMIW movement in revisiting these historical wars? I think that's an interesting question to ask, and I don't even have an immediate answer. It'll be interesting as the MMIW movement develops to see what direction it takes, because honestly, I think all of us involved, no matter what level of involvement we have, have to do a certain amount of internal work when confronted with these things. Yeah, I mean, it's acknowledging the erasure that's happened and that's still actively happening. It can be hard for people to hear that. I mean, the first thing is like a lot of people want to do now is when they hear something, they want to go and look it up. And I'm like, no, you won't find it. I can tell you exactly where you might be able to find some information about it, but it's not written on purpose. So it's very hard to revalidate this. Yeah, I really enjoy this conversation and I would gladly talk about it for hours, but... I would really like, again, to hear your kind of your call to action and how people can get involved, no matter if they're in the community or mm-hmm. not. Yeah, so definitely reaching out to Representative Newhouse, who's a co-sponsor of Savannah's Act, and letting them know that you want to see that continue for the safety of our Native women. You can find me on nativefriends.com, also on social media. And the list for our specific Native women cases is actually in a local newspaper, and they run a site through the Yakima Herald Republic called Vanished. And I think that's the only publicly available list of MMIW ran by a newspaper in the country. And that will be available along with their social media in the show notes. And because all of this information is, well, a lot, I would highly recommend signing up for the newsletter so you can get all of that in a more compact format. But follow Emily and everything that she's doing because it's just another perspective and approach and facet of this conversation that we're having. I just want to thank you so much for being on this episode and talking with me. Yeah, it's been great. There's a lot that I'm going to be thinking about from this conversation for sure. And I love, you know, being able to utilize technology in new ways to get a voice heard, you know, and so I appreciate this opportunity as well. Every resource we can. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? (laughs) Words of wisdom? Well, I think about, you know, when I think about history and I get folded into that and I think about the voice that our women and our people didn't have um, back then. And I think about now even talking, uh, you know, even between two Native women and then sharing this these messages out broadly with others. I think, wow, are we like who our ancestors prayed for? One day there'll be somebody that will be able to understand and learn the other language and be able to speak to the non-named community and help them understand who we are and our story and our history. Well, for someone who talks a lot, that almost rendered me speechless. I need, that's a very, I don't have words. So we were blessed yet again with another wonderful conversation and having Emily on the show with us. 
if you're listening now, I've finally recovered my words. I hope that what we talked about sparks some deeper thinking for you as well. It's always good to be challenged. Check out what Emily is doing through the links in the show notes. She's always giving a talk somewhere or working on a new project. Please also check out our special edition merchandise through the link in my link tree in show notes. We are over halfway done with Red November, so be sure to get your merchandise before it is gone. 80% of the proceeds will be donated to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Agnarok has put their heart into this design and project, and we hope that it touches you. Their information can also be found on the Some Kind of Brown website. I owe a massive, massive thank you to the amazing Teresa Bear Fox for the use of her song, Sky World, and I will see you next week for the last week of Red November. They are living